So let me sort of give you an introduction to this class. Um, <clears throat> the first half of this class is not going to be such big news. The second half of the class is something that I don't think you've read, you've, you've seen yet. But the first half of the class will be more, um, it's going to define both the men and women's role in, not so much in learning, but in what happened at Matan Torah. Because both the men and women, it seems, were at Matan Torah. And it seems from the text that they received different things. Not only a different Torah, but if you want to call it different, a different Mesorah, a different transmission type of thing. Um, so the first half, I just, I'm sure, I'm going to really use the first half in order to, yeah, I, that's good, give me one of those, because my one is very light, and my eyes aren't are what they used to be. Um, so the first half is not, um, it's going to be more about, you know, there's, there's a, um, There's, you know, something we don't like to hear so much about, but the more, the more, more years you're from, the more you could like sort of turn a blind eye to it. Um, but it's always like a little bit somewhere inside. Um, there's a few of these types of things. Uh, it's not just one thing. So I call it in some cases, Telvo is always good at that, right? I call it apologetics, okay? So a lot of times we have certain things in Judaism. Maybe it's, it has to also with women's issues as well. Um, and um, a lot of times you'll get an answer, but it sounds a little bit like an apology rather than an answer. And like we sort of got to buy it. If you're from for 10 years, you have to buy it more. If you're from for five years, you buy it less, right? It's sort of like stuff down your throat and stuff. So the first half is going to be more about showing you that it's not really apologetics <coughs> and it actually is um, there's, a, there's a difference between na the nature of man, nature of woman okay and, and that, a lot of times we try to show this because we, you know the men learn Torah differently than the women and they say like you know the man has to learn X, the woman has to learn Y uh, women are not obligated to learn Torah, men are yes obligated to learn Torah like there's something that's sort of like you know, when I was growing up, it didn't matter, but something that doesn't exactly sit well with it. Now, I have to tell you that within the modern Orthodox world, um, the, the type of learning that the men and women doing are much more alike than they used to be, okay? Because they have many schools that they study Gemara for women as well. When I was growing up, to be uh, really honest with you, you know, the, the idea was that, you know, women really can't study Gemara which is, of course, <coughs> baloney, right? Um, I know it's baloney because I taught women Gemara. And they know they, they really know the Gemara when I teach it to them. So, um, uh, but that's what we thought, you know, men's heads are different than women's heads, but then you have all these women who went to universities and they're able to do anything a man could do in the classroom or as the song goes, anything you could do, I could do better, right? <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> So it's all like, you know, it could be, I'm not denying the fact that it could be that a few hundred years ago where women were not, um, were not, uh, the focus of women was not something intellectual, academic, 
So women's minds weren't so actually uh, academic and intellectual because that wasn't the focus. You know what I mean? You could get like, you know, you'll, I'll get in Israel, for instance, you'll get a Sephardic guy that doesn't have much education, couldn't sit in a class, but he's, a, he's got a tremendous mind, right? But it, it, ha it, hasn't been, it hasn't been developed intellectually, so he's a businessman. Right? I can go into uh, you know, a store that a Sephardic guy is there and I walk out and I don't know where my pants are. Right? <laughs> so, so they're not stupid people. They may be less academic, but they're certainly, you know, and of course today I have a lot of academic Sephardic people as well, but I'm saying even the ones that are not, you know, half of them you talk to them and say, yeah, I dropped out of school, you know, I was the worst kid in the class, right? But he's a smart guy, you know? So, so a lot of times the same thing is true with women, you know? The, the, even in, in the secular world, women were not given the same opportunity in the 1920s and 30s uh, that, um, that men were given, okay? It's only later on, like in the, maybe it began really to take off in the 60s with, you know, feminism and women's liberation, right? So little by little that creeped into the, into the religious world. Now when I say creeped into the religious world, I don't only mean the modern Orthodox world. Because I could tell you, my father taught in Beis Yaakov, the first Beis Yaakov in America, in Williamsburg. Vichna Kaplan was the principal. My father taught there in 1946. Okay? He taught there the first classes of Beis Yaakov. He taught there for 18 years, right? And, and I have an uncle who started the Beis Yaakov here in Baltimore, with Hirsch Diskin, in 1955, I think. Now, if you take a look at the Beis Yaakov today, that Beisako from in Williamsburg, which is not even in Williamsburg, it's in Borough Park, or the Beisako here, there's no doubt in my mind that the women are learning on a more sophisticated level than the women learned in the 1940s. Not even close, okay? They may not yet learn Gemara, but they're, but they're learning a lot more, a lot more sources, a lot more um, breadth of material than they learned in the 1940s. Um, and it's not just because, you know, that was the beginning, it's that... The, the idea of academia creeped into the world at large, and of course, you know, there's a special expression we say in Yiddish, vis kristaltzich as a yiddeltzich. You know, the way it's Christian, that's the way it's Jewish. I didn't say that, by the way. One of the Bali Tosfus says it. Uh, it says it. He says, you, he says, you should always live with, he tells the Jews of his time in Germany, live with nice, non-Jewish people, because if you live with not nice Jewish people, you won't be nice because the way it's Christian, that's the way it is. says it in Hebrew. That's the way it's Jewish. So we have this expression, right? If you have people dishonest in one world, they'll be dishonest in the other world. We can't not be influenced. That's the bottom line. If you think you're not influenced, you're making a mistake about everything. I just spoke to a Beishaka girl in Toronto. I'm not going to go into the whole discussion. We had an hour discussion. Uh, Toronto has three schools. It has a Beis Yaakov school, which is the most, we call it, maybe right-wing religious school. And then you have something called Teferis Beis Yaakov, which is sort of in the middle. And then you have the Ulpanah, which is Dati Lumi, a little bit more modern orthodox, okay? So I spoke to a girl, I met a girl who came to visit one of my grandchildren. And uh, she's, I think, in 11th grade or 12th grade um, in the Beis Yaakov. And... Um, and I saw that she knows about things going on in the world that the typical Beis Yaakov girl 30 years ago would not have known. It was very clear. And one of the things she told me, she, 
I'm not going to go into what we spoke about now, but she said, you didn't hear it from me, Rabbi Sher. That's what she said. I'm going to tell you, but you didn't hear it from me. They, they know what's going on, and they don't, they're not only allowed to have even smartphones, but of course, I asked her if the girls in Beishakov have smartphones. And that was one of the things she said, you didn't hear it from me, Rabbi Sher. We don't have SIMs, but we have a smartphone. Actually, they said we have an iPhone, but we don't have a SIM. So I, I said, does the school know about it? She says, of course not. That's why you, you didn't hear from me, Rabbi Sher. Right? But, um, but they don't get a SIM, but when you're in the house, you have Wi-Fi. Right? So anyway, and you talk about girls that, you know, wearing stockings, you know, they were like the whole nine yards of Beziaco. So they are, they are, you know, much more broad and they learn a lot more. If you talk to them, they're very, very educated. Whether it's in secular studies or religious studies, they're very educated. Why am I telling you this? Because all the more so you really need to get an idea of, okay, what, what, is, what was the woman's role at signing the men's role? Or maybe it was really the same, and then later on, it sort of changed, right? We decided that women weren't so intellectual, academic, because in the Middle Ages, they weren't, right? And certainly, and therefore, their minds weren't developing that way. So that's why I said the women don't really understand Gemara. But, of course, when you go to university and you develop your mind in the secular world, you're going to develop it in Gemara as well. So if you start learning Gemara, you'll be able to understand it. And I'll tell you this girl this year at Madrash Rochelle who grew up in Williamsburg. Mm. She grew up uh, Skvera Chassid, right? And she went off the derek and became a non-Chassid. She never <laughs> went off the derek, but for them, that's off the derek. She's not a Chassid anymore. And she went to, came to Madrash Rochelle to study, which is quite unusual. I mean, I talked to her in Yiddish. I mean, she knows English, but I can speak to her in Yiddish when we have a little secret. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I, I said, I'm, I offer at lunch a class in Gemara, beginning Gemara, if you want to have it. She was the first to sign up. And then she came into class, and I, I was reading the Gemara, and I explained the Gemara to her, and she asked me questions. Toast was asked the question. She asked me another question that the Marsha asked. And she went to a school where they teach how to cook. Okay? <laughs> so, that is a noble profession. <laughs> <laughs> they teach kids how to cook. Anyway. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, obviously the women are bright enough to learn Gemara. There's no question about that. The only question is, at Sinai, was there a difference? Okay? And that's really what the shear is about. And there's two, so, two parts of the shear. There's one part that's going to sound a little bit apologetic, but I'm going to show you that it probably is not. Um, and the other side is going to be something new that you, I don't think you've seen before. So let's begin with the first source, because that's really the base of the whole class. Okay? <clears throat> In Sefer Shmos, of course, it says that that's the, the story of Matan Torah, of giving of the Torah. So the first source at the top right, Moshe Allah Kim, Moshe went up to God, Yikrei love Hashem, God called to Moshe, Menahar from the mountain, Lamar saying, Thusly you should say to the, the house of Jacob, literally, and you should tell the Jewish people. Now, there seems to be two groups here. According to the simple shot of the text, right? You should say thusly to the Bet Yaakov, 
the house of Jacob. And we know the Jews are called Yaakov and called Israel. And here you have both of them. But But the fact that it's broken up means it's two groups. So Chazal, Rashi quotes uh, the Chazal that says one group were the women, one group were the men. Okay? So there's your two groups. And it makes sense because, I mean, it couldn't be referring to, like, you know, people and the animals at Matan Torah. You know, there were animals around, but... That would be pretty strange. So it's two groups of, of people. So one must be the men, and the Chazal say the women are called Bet Yaakov, and that's, of course, that's where you get the name from. Forever after, the name Bet Yaakov, because that was based on that. Now, when we ran out of that, they used it so many times, that now they have Benos Bet Yaakov, and they have this Bet Yaakov, right? But that's because of Teferet Bet Yaakov, they have in, in Toronto. So Rashi comments, and he says the following thing. Lebet Yaakov, Eloha Nashim. These are the women. Tomar lem beloshen raka. You should tell them in a soft language. V'tagid levnei Yisrael, but you should tell, as opposed to say, the word tomar is to say to the women. You should tell the men. Onshim v'digdukim poresh l'azchorim. Taged means tell them the punishments and the subtleties you should explain to the males. Dvarim kegidim, things that are difficult, like a there's a certain type of plant that's very strong. It's called a gid plant, or some people learn it's a sinew in in the body, which is very strong. Uh, a sinew is called a gid, right? So some uh, different commentaries understand the chazal differently, but the bottom line is is Kasha Kagidim means something that's very strong. When you talk to them, tell them two things. The punishments and the subtleties. Okay? So, so the first thing Rashi defined first, number one, that there's two groups here. And the fact that it says Tomer and Taged is actually talking, God is talking to them differently. To the women, he's talking softly. And to the men, he's talking, he's telling, not saying. And then he adds, Rashi says, and... You're going to tell them the punishments, the men, which you're not going to tell the women, right? And you're going to tell them the subtleties. It's from Rashi, you see, and you're not going to tell the women. So what is exactly going on over here, right? There, Rashi's trying to find differences, right, between the two groups, right, the male and female. And the question is, what does Rashi really mean over here? Number one, you know, say as opposed to tell. And number two, you know, the women don't need the subtleties. I mean... Did you ever see women that don't need to know the subtleties of, of, of Borer on Shabbat? There's a lot of subtleties there, right? Cooking on Shabbat, they need to know the subtleties. So what do you mean don't tell, you don't need to tell, tell the men the subtleties. There's something strange going on over here. So we'll begin by talking about, you know, the obvious question that, you know, or the obvious uh, uh, approach to this would be, you know, women really can't take it. Right? So you've got to be soft with the women. right? They're not tough enough. But the men, you could really hit them over the head. It's not a problem. The women won't handle the subtleties well. They won't handle the punishments well. right? And therefore, you're going to give it to them. That, that would be the obvious approach, which the Maralmi Prague, I actually don't have the Maralmi Prague here, which I've been trying to get a hold of. He has a drosha, he said, on Shavuos. He has two drashot that he published besides all his works. He has two drashot that he published. Now, I tried to get it, and I wasn't able to get it before I traveled. And I tried to get it like, I just went into a shulta dab mincha today. I wanted to look there, and I would have taken a picture of it to show it to you, but 
they didn't have the maral there, so I couldn't do that. But um, the maral in Prague makes it clear that that's not the difference. The difference is not that women can't handle it and men can. The difference is women don't need it and men need it. In other words, they can, they can get what God wants if God talks to them softly. The men, you got to scream at them. you got to really let them have it. That's the way the Maharali Prague works, says it. And now the Maharali Prague is very important because there was no agenda there, right? He didn't want to make the women feel good, right? Because he lived in the 1500s, you know what I mean? 500 years before women's lived, right? And it could be his wife was in the audience. He was a little bit nervous about her, right? There's a drush, he said on Shavuos, maybe she was in the Ezra Nashim, right, in Prague, right? There's a nice Ezra Nashim there. So he was a little bit nervous. I don't know, historically. But he certainly didn't have the woman feminist agenda, right? And his claim is, and we're going to soon see Robert Soloveitchik already speaks this out. He doesn't really know the morale, but he speaks it out logically, Rev Soloveitchik's brother. Uh, but Rev Soloveitchik's brother lived in the 20th century, and we may think that he has an agenda, even though I knew Robert Soloveitchik very well. And he, when he spoke, he didn't have agendas. But it seems like sometimes when we hear an answer today, in the Orthodox world about women, sometimes we think there's like sort of a apologetic an agenda. But let me tell you what the Maral says. The Maral says that women <coughs> happen to be more spiritual than the men. Also have to ask like, why is it? Why, how do you know that's true, by the way? But um, women are more spiritual than the men and therefore they don't really need, they don't really need to be told uh, because they're spiritual and they connect much more easily to the Torah than the men. That's what the Maharal says. Baron Salvation is going to say the same thing, but he's going to elaborate a little bit more. That they connect more easily. You know, when I was in the, I was, when I, five years into the, like, made Aliyah to Israel, so five years after I made Aliyah, I got a letter from the Israeli army. We're drafting you. Okay, so I was about 26, so we're drafting you. So I said, look, you know, you don't need a 26-year-old. So he said, you're wrong. We need a 26-year-old. Oh. You're going there. So I said, can I work in the rabbinate? So he said, no, you can't. Your profile's too high. So if you have a low profile, we'll let you work in the rabbinate. But we want you in a combat unit. I said, in a combat unit. <laughs> I'm really not for that. I'm not paying up for that. So I went down there, and they put me in a combat unit. Uh, it was an anti-aircraft <clears throat> anti unit. Very primitive compared to today, but it was an anti-aircraft unit. And I kept trying to convince them for 12 years that I don't belong here. Didn't help. Well, finally, we had five kids, and they didn't, they didn't want me to come by you in five days in case I get killed. They'll have to support all the kids, so that's when they had a combat unit. But it was 12 years. Anyway, so, um, I mean, 12 years of me, Luim, I wasn't there every day, but... Um, mm -hmm. But I still remember the women of Resh Rachel at that time coming to visit me at, when, I was, when I was on the base or something. They used to make like a, a day outing to visit oh. Rabbi Shuren on a base in, wow. in Malia Dumim or something like that. Anyway, so um, when we had basic training, the guy comes in, uh, sergeant, and I'm like 26, 27, and he's like probably 19 or 20, and he's my sergeant, and he starts screaming at us. You know, threatening us and screaming at us, and you're going to fall into place. And I'm sitting to myself, like, what the heck is he doing? I mean, did anyone not fall into place? Like, did anyone, you know? So this goes on for like three or four days, and he's screaming at us, and we're doing exactly what he wants. 
So I, I, I got, got him at the side. I said, listen, I want to know something. You know, why are you screaming us and threatening us when we haven't done anything for threatening us? And, you know, he sits and he thinks for a second. He says, you know why I do it? Because I usually have 80-year-olds. And everything I say, when I say red, they say blue. When I say left, they say right. So it drives me nuts. So I threaten them at the beginning, and then they get scared. So I said, but we're like old men. I mean, you think we're going to try to get out of this, get out of that. You know, like, well, we're not going to do what you say. So he thinks about it, and he says, you know, you're right. I could just speak to you regular. Right? And that's why I say, it's like the, with God, because look, with the women, I can just speak to them regularly. You know? With the men, I have to tell them. I have to get the, you know, the subtle, we'll talk about the subtleties later, why, why the women are not part of the subtleties, but the punishments we can understand. If a woman, a person's more spiritual, they don't need to hear the punishments. If there's less spiritual, they need to hear maybe the punishments. Anyway, so let's read number four. Robert Soloveitchik writes in this, his book called Logic of the Heart, Logic of the Mind, God imposed more mitzvot upon men than upon the woman because a man is innately disposed towards excessive and abusive kibush grasping. In other words, Robert Soloveitchik wants to know why women don't have so many mitzvot as men, right? And it's a good question. It's an obvious question, right? So some people say because, you know, the women have to be involved in the home and therefore they can't do as many mitzvot. Robert Salvechik doesn't say that. He says that the nature of the woman is different, as, as, as the Maharal pointed out. And he says why. He says if you look at the male, he says innately disposed towards excessive and abusive kibush. Grasping means really to conquer. There's a natural abundance of energy in the male gender which, if not tempered and controlled properly, can be released in a very destructive manner. God in his infinite wisdom therefore imposed upon the male, male gender, the obligatory commandments created by a time element and the obligation to, to constantly be engaged in the study of Torah so that man's psyche will always be preoccupied with the spiritual intellectual endeavors, thereby counteracting man's natural disposition towards abusive kibbutz. In other words, what, what Rabbi Salvechik here is saying is that... Um, <clears throat> That the, the man, if it, the, he's really starting with a certain um, axiom. God wasn't out to get women. You know, someone could say the rabbis are out to get women, but God was certainly not out to get women because God is not even a male, right? I mean, don't quote me. But God is not a male, right? Um, the, so if the women were not, didn't receive the mitzvah of learning Torah, it's not because... God was out to get them, you shouldn't be learning Torah, so the men will be better than you, whatever have you. It's because the women didn't need it. That's the pushup shot, right? It's the simple shot, because God's not out to get women, so why would, because they don't need it. So they don't need the obligation to study Torah. Obviously, they need to know halacha and everything, but the obligation to study Torah day and night, they don't have, right? A male has the obligation to do that. He has a right to work, and if not study, but if a person becomes well-to-do, and he can, he feels he can sit day and night and study. That's what he should really do. Okay, a woman doesn't have that. A woman doesn't have that obligation. She has an obligation to learn halacha properly, and that, and and know the halacha. Now, she she is allowed to learn, but she's not obligated to do that. Okay. Now, <clears throat> that's number one. So, Rabbi comes from that from that perspective. 
he says that the male is different than the female. Okay? Uh, and I know there are even secular books that try to show that men and women are, are different, and a lot of, of the feminist groups in, the old, in my day, when I was in university, tried to show that men and women are the same, right? But, I mean, the biggest proof is what happened now in, in university in the swimming teams, right? Because now, right, I mean, you know, you, you, you play the game and you pay the price, right? So, uh, you know, the men start, decided to identify as women, right? So now they could swim with women, right? And, of course, all the men won, okay? Now, it's not that the women don't know how to swim as well as the men, Right? I actually wasn't exactly sure. I had a feeling, but then I, I saw an interview with a nurse um, who said that it's very obvious the build of the man, right, uh, uh, you know, the, gives them the ability to do things that the women can't do. They can swim quicker. She even explained it, like the body looks different and the breathing is different. And she actually explained it. I'm not, I'm not you know, a medical person, so I don't really know. But she, this was a woman that was like a liberated woman. She wasn't like one of these, you know, religious satmar women that was trying to save it, right? She was a very liberated woman. And she said that it's not fair. You know, a man, I don't care if he identifies as a woman, that's nice, you know, let him use a woman's bathroom. But he can't, he can't go swim against women because he, he's built like a man, right? And no woman is built like a man. You know, there are women who are built differently than other women, but they're not built with the man uh, biologically. This is what her claim was. Okay, and I take a word for it because she was a very knowledgeable person. The bottom line is really that... Um, that men are different than women, okay? But not necessarily in brain, they're different. They're different in, the, for Byron Silvagic, in their natural makeup, their tendencies. Now the question is why? In other words, why is the man less spiritual and more, um, he calls it, uh, the male gender is more destructive if it's not temperate and controlled and therefore they have to study Torah in order to get that, to, to sort of temper them right, and control them so they need the Torah study, whereas the women don't need that because they don't have that disposition. So he tries to answer up the question of why women are not obligated to study and why are they not obligated in time, why are the men, men obligated in time-bound mitzvahs and women are not obligated in time-bound mitzvahs, right? And he tries to basically show that because they don't need it, because they're more spiritual, just like the, the, the Maharal Prat, but he elaborates on it saying the tendency, the nature of man is to be a, um, a person that is um, um, very, um, um, an abusive person. Now, obviously, we have men that are, you know, that are not abusive people, but he says the tendency is more that a male will be abusive. The truth is like this, that... that that, that in, in abusive marriages, probably 75% of the abuse is the male and 25% of the abuse is the female, right? I actually had a student at Chappelle's whose wife was extremely abusive, physically abusive to him. And, uh, and I was always, like, surprised at it. Like, you know, uh, she used to beat him up. And he would only, like, try to defend himself. But she used the fact that she was a woman to... Um, when she called the police, she would call the police and say, look, he broke my glasses, you see he's an abusive guy. And she actually used to beat him up, okay? Um, 
He actually wound up going to a shelter for men. Wow. Okay? But that's, from what I understand, 75% that it's not true. So Ramaritzal Matrix is not wrong. Okay? Um, <clears throat> now, I want to show you something that, again, cannot be, there cannot be an agenda here. Okay? Rabnosan Svi Finkel, who was the head of Slobodki Yeshiva, the spiritual head, used to give Sichot Musser, and he never wrote them down, but other students wrote them down. This is a quote from one of the students who wrote his Shmuz down. He's on top number six, on the top left. Um, he quotes the author of Slobodka, and he tries to explain why are women more spiritual than men. Rabbi Salvation doesn't try to explain why. He just tells you the fact is that this is the man and this is the woman. He doesn't tell you where that comes from. Like, why did God create the world in a way that the men are different than women, right? They should be the same. So he tries to explain that. He says, The creation of the woman is above the creation of the man. Because she was not created from dust or dirt like the man. The male is clearly... He was taken from dust, it says in the Torah, right? Dust of the earth. Elami Gufadam. But the woman, it never says she was created from dust, it says she was created from man. Meaning, there was already a man, and God took something out of man and created the woman. After the man already had a neshama, which is God's image of man, right? The image of God in man, that's when he took the woman. Other Rishon, after he was perfected with an Ashoma by God, right? So he had the physicality of being created from the dirt, but he also had the spiritual side. After he was already a spiritual being, then God created the woman. Now, the fact that God created the woman from Adam and not from the dust made her more spiritual to begin with. That's what the Altar of Slobodka says. Now, he really believed this because he, he wasn't, you know, he said this in probably the late 18, early 1900s. So, it's not, there's, again, there's not an agenda here. There's not a, um, a apologetic here. He has no reason to be nice to women, okay? He's talking to the yeshiva guys, but he, he really believed this because that's the way the creation is. As you go further into the creation, it gets more sophisticated. It may start with the plant life, then it goes to the animals, then it goes to the humans, and then... After Adam, it goes to Chava. Okay? Rabbi Salvechik says a similar thing in this same article. I just plucked it out from a different place in the article. And it says like this. Such restrictive mandates were not imposed upon women. A woman recites the bracha asani kirt so no. This is the controversial bracha that women make every day, right? So, of course... The, always we ask, like the men say Shaloh Asani Isha, so why doesn't the woman say Shaloh Asani Isha, right? Why, why you know, you, you didn't make me a woman, you didn't make me a man, right? But we do say Shasani Kir no. okay? Now, it's not clear exactly what that bracha means. So Rabbaran Salvechik takes a very interesting <coughs> approach because all the brachas we make in the morning have to be something positive. So it can't be that, so to speak, we're t- telling the women, you know, oh, God made you like, you know, he desired and, you know, whatever he did, he did, right? You know, that, you know that's because they're positive brachas, all of them, right? It's just this one is in a positive format, right? 
which is less of a strong format, and the men's is in a, a negative format, which is a stronger, which fits actually with the Rashi, who says that with the men you have to be, you have to tell them, you have to be stronger than with the women. Now, Robert Salvechik says, such restrictive mandates were not imposed upon the woman. A woman recites the bracha of Shasani Kiritsono, who has made me according to his desire, not because of a lesser innate qualities, or, uh, of lesser innate qualities, but rather because the innate qualities of woman, the last created creature, the Ravaritzavich points that out too, the crown of the creation, already bent towards future culmination of God's desire. In other words, he says it's not because, like, you know, we give the women sort of a, a bone, but it's really because um, the innate qualities of a woman. A man has to struggle in order to be compassionate, tolerant, noble. A woman's personality was molded by the Creator in such a way that she naturally, that she is naturally endowed or disposed towards compassion and consideration. Okay? The very word, which you probably all know, equivalent of, the word equivalent in the Hebrew language of compassion is Rachmanut, Rachmanus, uh, from Rechem, which means the woman's womb, right? Those in the Tanakh, the Rechem is a, a name for the woman's womb, and, it, and the word Rachmanut, Rachem, it also means in the Torah to have mercy, to be compassionate, right? So, Rabbi is saying, you see that intrinsically, naturally, if the womb is called that, the woman naturally is more compassionate, and therefore, um, she was given the merit to have children because you don't want to give children to somebody who's not compassionate. A kid, children need compassion. They need you to be not self-centered. They need you to center around themselves, right? So Rabbi Zolvechik says that, very similar to the altar of Slobodka, but again, he elaborates, and he says, Shasani Kirtzono is that God made me, God made her, like his desire, like what he really wanted a man to look like. I don't mean man a male, but a, a human to look like, right? That's Shasani Kiritsono. He made her, the woman says, he made me like what he really desired because she was really the crown of the creation, okay? So now, um, that's why it would seem that the, the understanding of the Rashi would be that to the woman he would speak, God, God says, I'll speak to the women, but I will, I will tell you to tell the men, right? Because you have to be stronger with the men than the women. Because, because of their nature. And the nature comes from, according to the altar of Slobodka, it comes from their birth, meaning the, the natural tendency of the woman to be compassionate and have these positive midos, which the male doesn't have, that comes from the fact that they were born, they were created from a different, a different uh, part of the earth than men were. And they were created from the, from the human, and the man was created partially from, uh, from, from the earth. By the way, you know, there is a very famous question um, that everybody asks. Women are not obligated to have children. Yeah, we are not obligated to have children. Only men, according to Allah, men are obligated to have children, not women, which is very strange. Because the women are bearing the children, like you would think that they should be obligated, right? So I want to tell you, um, the Meshachachma comes up with a very interesting idea. I'm not sure that it's true, but it's a very interesting idea. And he tries to actually prove from the text, which is very, very important. 
he proves it from the text. What does he do? <coughs> he says that at the, at the beginning of Bereshus, God says, pru urevu. He says to both of them. He says, men and women are both obligated at creation to have children. Both the man and woman. It was just not, not the man, right? I mean, obviously the man needs the woman to have children. He's not going to be able to get pregnant. So, not yet, right? But, um, but, uh, but so, so obviously, but the woman is not obligated. So he claims the obligation changed after the sin. Because after the sin, it says in the text that women are going to only bear children with pain. And he claims that the Torah cannot obligate someone to have pain. That's what his idea is. Now, uh, it's a very interesting idea, but I actually came, I actually always thought about something and thought about this in a different way. I, I don't know if you know that there is a. Um, I actually mentioned it to Gail today. There is a question that people ask: Why on certain mitzvos you don't have brachot, right? You know, on lulav, on shofar, you have brachot, but on when I, when I invite a guest into my house, you say, you don't say, right? Right? You don't have a shek. And it's all commandments. These are commandments. It's all part of the 613 mitzvahs. How come we don't make a bracha on it? So the Rajpa raises the question, and he wants to claim that since it's two people are involved, you never know. Like you invite someone into the house, right? You never know if he's going to stay. So you make this bracha. Right? You, invite, you make the brochach, he comes into the house and he goes, oh, I just got a call, I got to leave. No, no, no. I got to, you know, you can't leave. I'm going to, brochach Right? So that's the Rajma claims, that's why you don't make. But Rev, Rev, um, I, I think I once saw it also in, um, in a Risham, in Rabbeinu Bechai, but Rev Shlomo Zalman Arbach says, because that would be taken away from the mitzvah. Why? Because when you have a mitzvah that you're commanded to do, Right, it's a lot of times what what happens. The nature of that type of mitzvah is that you don't, you don't, you don't have the human side to it. Like when you shake a lulav, you, you know, people are not so compassionate about shaking a lulav or hearing to get a chauffeur or you know doing something on Shabbos, you know, making kiddush or something. I mean, you could be compassionate, but the Asher Kesham Tzavit Sivanu to command me, right? that takes away a little bit from my natural desire to do good, right? Meaning, if I'm doing chesed, God didn't want me to do chesed because he commanded it. Don't do, because let me tell you something. If, so, if I was invited to someone's house for Shabbos, and he said, listen, I just want to know I invited you because God said so, I probably would leave, right? I know what kind of Shabbos I'm going to have there. If all the reason why I'm there is because God said so, I'm in deep trouble. I know exactly which bedroom he's putting me in, right? So, so the point over here is that, the point is that, um, and Rav Shlomo Zalmer says this explicitly, they didn't want the word vitzivanu to be in the in, in, in your doing of the of the of the mitzvah because it takes away from the mitzvah. Now, of course, you should feel you're commanded, but once God, God is really commanding you to do without a command. Like normally, God commands you to shake a lulav because He commands you to shake a lulav. He commands you to hear shofar. He commands you to you know put a mezuzah on the door, right? Right. But here. We wanted the command to be 
without a command. Meaning, that is the command. Do it without a command. Right? And therefore, <clears throat> if I say, and you commanded us, right? It takes away from the way you're going to do the mitzvah. It'll become a little bit more robotic. And God didn't want the mitzvah to be so static. He wanted there should be passion. When, you, when you're going to visit a sick person, you're not going to visit only because God said so. You have to have compassion on the sick person. When, you, when you're doing a chesed for someone, right? You can imagine what that chesed will look like if you're doing it only because God said so. But if you do it because you really feel with that person, because you worked on compassion or you worked on uh, uh, sympathizing or empathizing with the person, obviously the mitzvah is going to look very different. So I believe that the woman was not commanded to have children because something that the Torah gives you naturally, right, that you have naturally, you don't need a command for it. In other words, a woman is naturally has the disposition of having kids, like Rabbi Soloveitchik says, because she's a compassionate person, a giving person, right? So she didn't need the command. If the man wasn't commanded, he'd be out of here, okay? You know, like, I'm not commanded to have kids, goodbye, child, all right? So the man had to be commanded, but the woman didn't need because it's a natural thing. And God doesn't need to command something. I'll give you an example. You know, if God was writing the Torah today, oh, is that my fault? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because no, I was talking about kids, you know. <laughs> but, um, um, if God was giving the Torah today, would he say, you should love your friend like yourself? Or would he say, well, he would say, love yourself, right? Because why didn't God command us to love ourselves? Why does he command us to love others like us? Isn't that an important thing to love yourself? Ask any psychologist, right? He'll tell you there's books written on loving yourself, people who hate themselves, right? Right? Self-hate. is like, It's such an important thing. Why did God command us to do that? And I'll tell you what I think the reason is. Because that's natural to every human being. Now, if you find people who don't love themselves, they don't need the Torah. They need a psychologist. Okay? You're supposed to love yourself naturally. The question is, now I'm going to love others like myself, then I need a Torah to tell me. Because that's a very big idea. Love someone else like me, right? Like myself, that's a big thing. I can love somebody else, but like me, right? But loving yourself, the Torah didn't have to command because it, since it didn't command, to me it's obvious that normal people love themselves. Abnormal people don't, right? So if you, if you don't love yourself, you need to see a therapist. You don't need to see God, Right? So, so the same thing with women having children, right? The women didn't need to be told to have children because it's a very natural thing to women to have kids. I mean, that's why they were given this, to have kids. The Rabbi Aretzel says they have the Rachmanut, they're, they're called the Rechem, whatever we're going to say. But the point over here is that I believe that it's a natural thing that a woman wants to have kids. And if you have women today who don't want to have kids, I believe it's not natural. It's, it's socialization that tells them all this new age stuff, this, this Western stuff. But, um, but I, I think that deep, deep down, again, it could be repressed, all these things could be repressed. Deep, deep down, women want to have kids, okay? I know men that also want to have kids, but, but, uh, but I know men that, you know, they, they feel they have to have kids, you know? So they have kids, right? But that's why I believe that 
Um, maybe the, the Meshachachim is right, but I believe that that's the real reason why a woman was not commanded, exactly for this reason, because naturally she was given that schut because she's a more spiritual person and a more compassionate person, which again is part, according to her balance of nature, is part of spirituality, to be like God. God is compassionate, so the woman is compassionate. It's much closer to God than the man is. The man has to work on being compassionate, whereas the woman doesn't need to do that. Now that's the first half. The, the, the second half of the class is based on the next side. Okay? That's going to be discussing right, the different role in Matan Torah than the men than the women and this idea of digdukim, which we said, you know, the, the subtleties of Torah. Because as you know, Torah has a tremendous amount of subtleties. It's, it's really, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Okay? I had a student in 1978 he was a lot older than me. Today he must be at least 75. Uh, I'm much younger than that. Okay. Um, and uh, he said, he, was a, he had a doctorate in philosophy from, from, the, um, from MIT. MIT, which is not, no slouch, okay? He came to, to Chappelle's, not Chappelle's, he came to Chappelle's, right? Um, by the way, I know a lot of guys who would like to go to Rosh Hashanah. But, um, they don't identify But what? Not because they identify No, no, they just, you know, some of them don't want to learn Gemara eight hours a day. But uh, they heard that we don't learn Gemara eight hours a day, so they're very, they really want to do what we're doing. But anyway, um, so I, 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 I remember asking him, I was very young at the time, I just started teaching at Chappelle's. And there was no Patricia Rachel then. Um, and um, I asked him, like, what made him observant? So he said, someone in Cambridge started studying with him um, the Sefer Chafetz Chaim. That made him from. I said, like, how did I make you from? I thought maybe he's going to tell me, because, you know, not speaking bad, negative about people, that's a very beautiful thing. And I thought that's why he didn't say that to me. He said, I couldn't believe how intricate the laws of Lashon Hara could be. Like, you know, you either say, I'm talking about Antilly, or I'm not talking about Antilly. Like, but what, you're allowed to say this, but you're not allowed to say that, right? He said, he couldn't, he says, a religion that has such intricacies, right? He says, and he was a philosopher. He says, that has to be the true idea, because people are not simple people, they're intricate, right? And obviously the Torah was given by God. It's going to be very intricate because God gave the Torah. So he said this convinced him that you could have these laws of Lashon Hara, a whole book, right, of, of the laws of Lashon Hara. And if you, if you actually ever study the original Chavetz Chaim, you'll see it's like, I mean, Lahavdal, it's a doctoral thesis, right? He really codifies everything about law. I've had questions about certain issues about Lashon Hara, about when I was studying a certain Gemara or something, and then I look up the Chavetz Chaim, and he actually talks about that Gemara. I thought I, I got him on one that he that he forgot about, <laughs> right? And he didn't forget. You know, it's just unbelievable what he was able to do without a computer, without anything, right? So, the the, the intricacies are obviously there in the Torah, and even even when we learn commentaries, even if we're not learning Gemara, we learn commentaries: the Rashi, the Ramban, the Sforno. You see that there's, there's, there's these subtle differences between them many, many times, 
Right? Sometimes it's very big, there's some subtlety. Certainly in Gemara, there's subtleties all the time. That's why the guy's always with the thumb. It's not exactly like this, it's like this and that, right? It's, you know, you'll, you'll see two things that look alike, and then the Gemara will say, no, this is like this, and this is like this. No, the subtleties are very, are there. And obviously in a lot of professions, it's also like that. You know, with psychology or medicine, in medicine there's a general practitioner, but there's a lot of subtleties that the typical person doesn't know about that it makes a lot of difference whether you know those subtleties or not when you're prescribing something and so on and so forth. So Rav Soloveitchik, the famous Rav Soloveitchik of Boston of YU, he asks the following question in number three over there on, on the left side, page 76. People are mistaken in thinking that there is only one Masora and one Masora community. The community of the fathers, the community of the fathers, it is not true. We have two Masora, two traditions, two communities, two Shalshalatakabola, the Masora community of the fathers and that of the mothers, right? Thus shall the, say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. He quotes this passage. And he says, these are two different communities. Hear my son, the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the teaching of thy mother. Counsel the old king, meaning Shlomo HaMelech, right? Shema b'ni Musar avicha v'alti Now again, Shema b'ni Musar avicha, right? The, the, the father is rebuking Musar. V'alti Torah the teaching. There's a very big difference over there, again, correct? The father rebukes, the mother teaches, okay? And we'll talk more about this. What is the difference between the, the, these two, those two Masorah traditions? What is the distinction between Masorah Vicha and Torah Dimecha? Let us explore what one learns from the father and what one learns from the mother. Now, he's, he's the best one to do this. Why? He never went to yeshiva. Or Salvechik never went to yeshiva. He studied with his father. He never went to any yeshiva. I, I once, uh, my father studied under a in 1940 in Boston, right? There was like a little kolel. So my father was one of the kolel guys in Boston. And um, my father asked him, you know, my father played, played chess. So my father asked him, he said, does the Rav play chess? So he, the Rav smiled and he says, I didn't go to Slabotka. No. <laughs> That's what he answered. In Slabotka, chess, if you lost chess, you cried. Okay, it was like, a really important thing to be good at a chess game. But Salvation never went to Yeshiva. He didn't have any of this stuff. Right? He learned by his father. So he could tell you what he learned from his father, what he learned from his mother. And that's what he's about to do. One learns much from father, how to read the text, the Bible, the Talmud, how to comprehend, how to analyze, how to conceptualize, how to classify, how to infer, how to apply. Right? One also learns from the father what to do, what not to do. What is morally right, what is morally wrong. Father teaches the son the discipline, that's an important word, of thought as well as the discipline of the action. Father's tradition is an intellectual moral one. That is why it is identified with musr, which is the biblical term for discipline, right? It's rebuke, discipline. What is Torah Simecha? Says, he says something interesting here. What is the Torah of the mother? What kind of Torah, what kind of a Torah does the mother pass on? I admit that I am not able to find it precisely. That Masoric role of the Jewish mother. In other words, she can't, he says, I can't define it. But 
only by circumscription I could, I hope to be able to explain it. Permit me to draw upon my own experience. I used to have long conversations with my mother. In fact, it was a monologue rather than a dialogue. Right? A monologue. Like she talked and I happened to overhear. This is what he says. What did she talk about? I must use a halachic term in order to answer that this question. She talked to minyona de yuma. Means the matters of the day. Right? I used to watch her arranging the house in honor of the holiday. Of a holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the Sidra every Friday night, and I still remember the nostalgic tune. Right? She went over Steinbeck Targum, and she had it with a tune. Right? I learned from her very much. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in a formal compliance with the law, but also in a living experience. Okay? She taught me that there's a flavor and a scent, and a warmth to mitzvah. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure, His hand resting upon my frail shoulders. Without her teachings, which was quite often transmitted to me in silence, I would have grown up soulless, being dry and insensitive. Okay? In other words, he'd be a robot. He'd be doing exactly what he needed to do, right? He would do, you know, all the intricacies of Shabbos, of Kashras, right? But he'd do it like a robot. Because he wouldn't have, he would have the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, right? The greater, you know, the greater spirituality behind the law. The laws of Shabbos, for instance, were passed on to me by my father. They are part of Musa Ravicha. The Shabbos as a living entity as a queen, was revealed to me by my mother. It is part of Torah de Mecha. The father knew much about the Shabbos. The mothers lived the Shabbos, right? Experienced her presence and perceived her beauty and splendor. Okay? Basically, or Solveitchik is saying, the mother was in charge of the bigger picture and the father was in charge of the intricacies, the subtleties. And if you notice, that's exactly what Rashi is saying. He's saying, the men give the subtleties to now, the women also have to know the subtleties. But we're making a mistake if we think Sinai was like, you know, you're going to take Talmud 101 and you're going to take Chumash 102. It wasn't like giving out like the University of Sinai, right? And giving out a program. It was really, <clears throat> according to Rashi, defining the different roles. So when it had to define the woman's role, Right? It didn't go into the subtleties. Not because she doesn't need the subtleties. Because that's not what she's going to be giving over. She's going to be over the, the beauty of the religion. Right? That's what she's going to be giving over. And that's, the subtleties are not important. If anything, once you get involved in the subtleties, you sort of can't find your way into the spiritual side. A lot of times we get so into like, you know... That's the famous question I always get from the mothers of my students. Does God really care? You know, I always get this because the mother lit candles for her first time and the, and the daughter said, Ma, you got to light before sunset. So the mother goes, you think God cares? Well, I lit candles. He doesn't care, right? Right? You know, when you get into the subtleties, right? So that, you know, we understand. I could, I could you know, we, we can give a share on why the subtleties are important. But the point is that the, the mom who's not observant is not wrong. 
there's a bigger picture here that she's relating to, and we need both, right? Where salvation says, my father gave me the subtleties. Not that the mother didn't know the subtleties. His mother knew the subtleties very well, okay? But that wasn't her job. If the father's job was to give him the subtleties, the mother's job was to make sure he's not a robot, right? Because if you're not careful, that's what happens, right? And we know that, you know, a lot of yeshiva students are not sensitive to, you know, when it comes to really maneuvering within halacha. They know how to do halacha, but they don't know how to maneuver within halacha because they get so um, bogged down by the subtleties that they can't move beyond it. And of course, what he says is, that's what I need to get from my mother. Now, I want to tell you something interesting. Let's turn over the page again. And one of the last things I'll do is, is uh, the last thing I'll do is number nine. Someone asked for Shlomo Zalman this question, a question. And I'm, I'm going to give it to you because I knew Shlomo Zalman Orbach very well. I used to go to him once a week to speak with him. And um, this used to happen all the time. So I'm giving you a written example of it, but it happened all the time. One time a fellow writes in this Sefer, he has a Sefer he wrote of questions he asked from Shlomo Zalman. So he says, I asked him about something like Shabbos, being Malachas Lash. There's a Malach in the Torah called Lash. Which, what does it mean? The Rav said, you really have to understand why do we have eggs and onions on Shabbos? Now, I don't know if you guys have that, but in my family, we always had eggs and onions on Shabbos. Shabbos morning, we started off with eggs. Now, in Israel, they have eggs with raw onions, right? And they put some oil to give it like, you know, they make it into a a uh, salad, right? Because the eggs are falling apart. Like when you chop the eggs, they fall apart. So now you make it a salad through the oil. And my wife, Esther, makes it through. She The onions have oil in it, the fried onions, because they're fried onions, and that keeps it together. So R- 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 Shlomo Zalman says, we really have to understand why is it, right, that you're allowed to do this. Gibul means to... Gabel means to make something into one, into a, into a, um, what do you call it, like uh, a, 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 what? A form, but it's really more like, you know, to get it, to put it together, and it sticks together, right? That's gibul, right? So, so, Shlomo Zalman says, we have to understand, why, you know, why are you allowed to do that at Shabbos? Because it's gibul, and lush means to actually take something, Lisha is to take something and knead it together and make it into a more solid, uh, more solid uh, object, right? So he says, why is it mutter? Now listen to what he says. Harav Amar, I tell you, Dei Olam is a mutter? You know why it's mutter? Ki Because my grandmother did it. Now every yeshiva guy should get a heart attack when he says this. Right? My mother did it and my grandmother, so it's definitely mutter. Okay? This is what he said. Now, I can testify this is true. I wasn't here at this time, but I was here at other times when he said things like this. Right? 
right? Halachtiyim shel zeh. You have to you have to explain halachically why it's mutter, okay? But it's mutter. Now we just have to explain halachically. Afilu mahesbushliim shama dochuk. Even if my explanation doesn't seem so good, seems a little forced. Zelo yishanet psak halacha bazeh. We're not going to change halacha, okay? And actually, the Shmir Shabbos Kilchata, the famous book, he brings Rav Shlomo reason for it, and it's not such a great reason. I'm not going to go into it right now. But it's okay. But he says it doesn't matter if it's okay. Now, take a look what he's trying to do. He's dealing with the subtlety of Lash, okay? But he's saying that, no, it's mutter whether I, the subtlety proves itself or doesn't prove itself. Why? Because my grandmother did it, okay? So I want to tell you something interesting. You may not know this. You know, one of the famous Hezda yeshivas that we have, like, there's three that are considered like the, the what do you call it, the, the, the elite three yeshivas that they have. They're all good yeshivas, the, you know, the one-year programs, but they have three Hezda yeshivas amongst hundreds of Hezda yeshivas that have this name as being elite. It doesn't always mean that it's the best yeshiva, certainly not for every kid. One of them is Karen Biavna. Right? And one of them is the Gush, and one of them is Shalavim. Okay? These were always considered like the elite yeshivas amongst the Hezda yeshivas. I'm not talking about the American programs. I'm talking about the Israeli program, the Hezda part. Anyway, so the head of one of the yeshivas was a very famous rabbi, Ravar Lichtenstein, he was a student and a son-in-law of Soloveitchik. And he wrote that he went to Shlomo Zalman Arbach with his daughter, to see if you're allowed to actually um, pierce an ear to make an earring. Because, you know, by the Soloveitchiks, you don't, you don't just do it because everybody does it. You're not allowed to, in some way, um, you know, destroy the body, even in a small way, right? So to make a hole in somewhere in the body might not be permitted. So his daughter wanted to get earrings, and she wanted to uh, pierce her ears. And he said, look, we got to go ask Rosh Hashanah Zalman Allah. He used to ask Rosh Hashanah Zalman. Whenever he had a question on Allah, he asked Rosh Hashanah Zalman. That he didn't know. He says, I'm not sure you're allowed. We have to see what he says. So they come to Rosh Hashanah Zalman. And he, no, Rosh Hashanah Zalman knew that, that Rosh Lichtenstein was a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was Gaon, right? So Rosh Hashanah Zalman smiled. <coughs> he writes this. He smiled and he said, you know why it's mutter baron? He says, you know why it's mutter? Because my grandmother, I remember when, when my, uh, my, my mother, when my sister was born, she made a hole in the ear. <laughs> right? When I was born, they did a bris milah. But when they, the sister was born, they did a hole in That's how I know it's mutter. Now I have to tell you why. This is what he said to her. And he writes it. Rabbi Lichtenstein records it. This is what he said to her. She, again, very consistent. I know that it's mutter because that's what she did. The fact that I can't explain it is irrelevant. He, by the way, he did explain it to him, but the fact that I could explain it is irrelevant. It's nice to have a reason, but it doesn't matter. Right? Now, I'm not saying, here we're talking about obviously traditional people that were from women that, you know, Shlomo Zalman Orbach's mother and grandmother, they really knew what they were doing, and Rebarn Soloveitchik's mother, these were women who came from, you know, well-known rabbinic families, right? So they really knew, but, but it didn't matter to Rishon 
they had that Masorah. What I'm trying to bring out to you is that um, the, the women had a certain Masorah that didn't need to go into the intricacies. The men need to go into the intricacies, but the women, they have a Masorah without the intricacies. They know what the, the mother did, the grandmother did, and that already makes it mutter. You know, it doesn't need the intricacies. We, but I want to give you, when, before I end, I want to give you something that's very interesting. Um, maybe I'll tell you like two stories that, that, that are very, very interesting. Um, I'll tell you one about my grandfather. My grandfather's um, mother and Rev, Rev Soloveitchik's mother. The one he speaks about here. So I want to tell you something Rav Soloveitchik told over in his class once that he was sitting as like a six-year-old, seven-year-old boy. He was sitting listening to his father speaking to someone about a Rambam. Okay? And his father was stumped. His father, he remembers his father saying, you know, you have a very good question. My answer to the Rambam is not a good answer. I don't know what answer to this Rambam. Rav Soloveitchik, he was like six, seven years old, he runs into the kitchen, he starts crying to his mother. Abba doesn't know how to answer the Rambam. And he's like crying. So the mother calms him down, she says, you should bear, you don't have to, when you grow up, you'll answer the Rambam. <laughs> and he says, it really calmed me down. Right? So the, the mother there was giving him a love of learning. Like, a desire to want to get a, to a great Talmud Chacham. She didn't say one halacha to calm him down. She gave him the bigger picture. You know, when you grow up, you'll answer the Rambam. Now, he may actually have answered that Rambam. I don't know. I don't remember. But, but that's what he told that story. He said that's, his mother gave him the desire. Right? The father told him, you have to learn. That's what God says, right? Can't play ball now. You got to learn. God wants us to learn. The mother gave him the desire to grow into a Talmud Chacham, right? But I want to tell you something else, because she came from a rabbinic family. Her father was a rough in Prujin. But my grandmother, my great-grandmother, <laughs> my grandfather's mother, didn't come from a rabbinic family, okay? And it was very interesting. We were once sitting and talking, and we, we, my grandfather, my grandmother served grapes. And my grandfather... Like grapes. So we started talking about the whole idea of, you know, how many grapes you should eat, should you overeat on grapes, because it's really delicious, and it's like, you know, it's a little bit addictive. Right, so we're talking about it. So he says, he says, um, when I was a little boy, my mother, my mother um, gave me grapes. And in Lithuania, obviously, it was in Lithuania. And um, I tasted it for the first time. I remember it. I said to my mother, how could it be that grapes can ever get to the supermarket? I mean, in those days, it was like the fruit stand. said, don't they eat them up before they get there? <laughs> like, the people picking the grapes, they, they probably eat them all up because, you know, it's so delicious, right? So she says to him, no, no, the first day they let them eat as much as they want, and then they don't have to worry because they get so sick of it. That the next day they don't even want them anymore. <laughs> so, so my grandfather said, I know that she was trying to tell me to eat it, you know, don't indulge. You know, don't overeat. 
And that's the way she explained it. Now, we know there's a concept, Kedoshim Tiyu, that you should not overindulge. That's the, Ramban, the novel Bereshut Torah, the famous Ramban. And Chumash says, one should not be a pig with the permission of the Torah. Right? You're allowed to eat a, a Mahadran steak, but you're not allowed to eat seven steaks. Right? You know, that's a overindulgence. That's excessive. Right? You know, I'll be an excessive person as a Jew. So he says, but my mother taught it to me, not in a conceptual way. She taught it to me from life, right? In a very living, in salvation, she said, it, my mother taught me the living Torah, not the conceptual Torah. And that's what you see, that that's the way the mothers viewed themselves, is that I have to teach you not the, the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. In other words, I don't teach you the con- concept of the Ramban. I don't even know if she knew the concept of the Ramban. Maybe yes, maybe no. But she knew the concept, and she knew how to give it over to her son in a way that he would get the message. That Rabbi Yaakov said, I definitely got the message at that time that you don't overeat. You, you, you're satisfied with a certain amount because if you overeat, you won't enjoy it afterwards. So, so the, what I'm trying to say is that you see that there's like a certain Masorah that the mother is opposed to, but it had nothing to do with the fact that the women can't do something. It had to do with the nature of the woman was more um, prescribed for giving over this Mesorah, this love, than the harsh part of the Torah, Shmabini Musar of Yichbal, the Torah Zimechanars, right? Tageid Levene Yisrael, right? To tell. There, there is your big difference between, um, between the men and the women. And I think that's what Rashi over here, when he says, right? Not that the women don't need to keep it, but at Matan Torah, it has to come from the man. That's what has to come from, the man, not from the woman. The woman has to look at the bigger picture because you really need both. If you don't have both, if you just have one, you'll be a robot. If you just have the other, right, you won't be keeping halacha properly. You'll have the spirit of the law and you'll have the heart of the law, but you won't have the particulars of the law. So you really need the mother and you really need the father. And if, if Hashem, there is no father or no mother, then the, the, the parent has an obligation to do both. Right to give them both, but but um, but where there is two where there are two parents, of course, the two parents have the father has to be like Rosalvechik said the one that is more the stricter one, and the mother has to be more the loving one, right? You have to have really both. You know they call it the now we call it the good cop and the bad cop, mm-hmm. right? Right? There's a good cop and the bad cop, right? So I always make up with my wife when we, so we have to, someone comes to like to do something in the house. Right, so I'm the one who's like the bad cop, and she's the good cop. Or sometimes she'll play the bad cop, and I'll play the good cop. Because you really need both. You need, on the one hand, to tell the guy I'm not paying your price, but on the other hand, you need the guy not to leave. So you really need to have both both sides of it, right? You know, the more compassionate side, and then the more like strict side. She doesn't bring out her cookies. What? Does she just bring out her cookies? Cookies. That's all the chocolate sugar. Congo bars. Congo bars. Anyway, so the point is that. That's what really the, the Rashi here, and this short Rashi is really giving us the real idea of the two Masoras that we have there. So Lechik speaks about, and these are really the two Masoras. Because of their tendencies of being different, God gave each one what they're natural, what they're naturally, um, you know, what's natural to them. And they should give what's natural to them over. Obviously, if something's not natural, it's harder to give it over. But this is something that's natural, therefore, it makes sense that what I'm naturally good at, 
right? I should be giving over. And that's really what I want to say. Any questions, any points? Question. Would, you like, would the Rev like my uh, question on a greater shear or on the second page? What do you mean? <laughs> I have a question on the greater shear and I also have a question. I, I, can, I can take either. If anyone needs to go home, you can go home. I don't get insulted. <laughs> you could be here till 2 in the morning. No, oh, I'm just kidding. I do have to go, but... What? I'm sorry, I missed... Was it the Rav, the second page, or it yeah. was Rav Chaim? Rav Soloveitchik. Rav Yeshaber Soloveitchik. Okay. It's amazing because the... So my question is on Rav Chaim's later essay, also in the traditions. Yeah. He's, he's talking about... Oh, you're talking about Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, his son. Yes. His son, yeah. You've read that essay? It's no. like 100 pages. Well, we own in the book. I read the article, but I didn't know it came oh. into a book form. It was recent, it was uh-huh. ten, last ten years sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, um, so the question is what what he's discussing: the gentle pressure of his hand resting on my frail shoulders, almost exactly what Red Klein talks about. Correct. And so my question is: is this ingrained in women? And so. If Reb Chaim is correct that we lost the Masora, women can still get this. Thing. And he actually says we lost the Masora. Right. He says the Mishabruers are a li- little to blame of, of that. Right. So, so women still have this or no? Again, he, in other words, the, the will tell you that the women have to get it back. Okay. In other words, that they have to work on getting it back because if it was, it was, it was lost because of the way women are studying and so on and so forth, that's not a good thing. Because right. then we're missing something in the perfection of giving over the Torah. Right. Okay, thank you. And my other question, the greater shear, I, I remember very clearly Manuka saying when we were there, and if you have an issue, it's my memory and not what Manuka said, that she was saying... I, I never argue with Manuka. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I, actually, I actually know a, a rabbi that lives in the Gush Etzion area, and he once said to me, whenever she offers me a ride, I don't take it because I'm oh. afraid she'll talk to me in learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. She, she was saying that um, when, whenever you see like, a, a difference between men and women, it's a hope, and don't look for explanations mm. because if you look for explanations, they're going to use it against you sometimes. Mm. And I'm wondering, that, like, to say, like, you could even say about, about um, what, from what Red Aaron is, saying she's naturally endowed or disposed towards compassion and consideration. Well, you could use that against somebody. Or like to say, what do you like, mean? I'm saying, like, you could say, like, oh, well, women are nat- naturally endowed with compassion, so they don't have to be first in line. Or you could say, like, really it's the men that need the learning in Torah, so they should really get the money for the yeshivas. Like, is there an argument to be made that we should just not talk about it? <laughs> No, I think, I think uh, you're right. I mean, anything could be used and abused, right? And we have to be careful not to abuse it. You know, you can't take advantage of her because a woman's compassionate. You can't take advantage of her because of that, you know? Let's, like, you know, because she's compassionate, let's, um, let's fool her, let's, uh, right? So, uh, uh, again, uh, women are not stupid, right? They may be compassionate, but sometimes you have to, you know, not play your natural role in order to... You know, in order to make sure that nobody's taking advantage of you, right? Uh, so I don't think Rosalvechik would deny the fact that women should not, you know, be uh, doormats, right? Because they have to be compassionate. Compassion is a strength; it shouldn't become a weakness. But maybe the other example is better with the yeshivas because 
I'm sure the Rav deals with this all the time, that there's lots of families who only give to yeshiva and they don't give to the midrasha where the women went because they're like, oh, it's more of an obligation for men to learn. We have to give to them. That's, that is true. Uh, that's, that's what a lot of people think. But, um, and again, the letter of the law may even say that. But obviously, again, there, there are imbalances in Judaism. We'll have a lot of people in the Torah world that will, you know, not great rabbis, but certain people in the Torah world, which will be imbalanced in the sense that the mitzvahs between man and God are more important than the mitzvahs between man and man. Now, where do they get that from? There's no source to that. Mm-hmm. Right? But they'll have it because of, that'd be a whole share in itself. Why is it, why does that happen? But it definitely happens, according to the simple level, because one is stressed more than the other. Rabbi Shon Salanter says it already, because people stress much more mitzvah man and God, therefore mitzvah man and man got the raw deal, so to speak. Right? He says if you start stressing the mitzvahs of man and man, then we'll get, we'll get to a balance. All right? So that, that we find in the, in the Torah world that sometimes certain mitzvahs get lucky, so to speak. Other mitzvahs don't. Today, the mitzvahs between man and God are very lucky. And mitzvahs between man and man are pretty pathetic, right? They're really unlucky. But that's not the way it should be, right? So the same thing with the study of the giving of Torah, right? Giving money to Torah, right? Obviously, if the men are all giving money to the extreme and women schools are not giving money, you're gonna have a. You're not gonna have a very. That's what Sarishner really said. She said you'll have a lot of women who'll be very educated, but they're not gonna to want to marry Torah people because they won't have a Torah education. Right? She was afraid that the women were getting very educated, but they weren't getting a Torah education. So it's extremely important that um, uh, that. Um, in fact, I don't. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but there was a fellow in Israel, the head of Chevron Yeshiva in the nineteen. 30s already, 1940s, 50s, his name was Rukhats Pusarmi. And he said, he, at, a, at a certain dinner, he got up and he said, the, it was a, a, a dinner, a fundraiser for Hebron Yeshiva, and he said, the one who's really most responsible for the great scholars we have in Hebron Yeshiva is someone that never even opened the Gemara. Her name was Sarishner. That's what he said. And they were starting because without without the women studying Torah, they, they wouldn't want to marry son. You know, we used to call in Yiddish a bank fetcher. You know what it is, a bank fetcher, a bench pusher, a guy who pushes the bench. Right? That's the that's what he was called. The yeshiva student was called a bank fetcher. He fetches the bank, the the the, the seat. Right? The, so the only reason why women married those guys because it became an idea. Right? It became an idea because Sarishner, if not far. So he said this this person is responsible for all the yeshiva students that we have because even though she never he didn't say she, he said that that person never opened up a Gemara and her name was Sarishner. Right? So in other words, we know that there is the importance of women's Torah and there are, thank God, people who very much appreciate um, that women are studying Torah and that they're building beautiful homes. But you're right. There's so, many times there is an imbalance of it that you know um, that because there's a lot of imbalances in Judaism. You know, there's a famous Gemara. The Gemara says that a woman is drowning, and the Gemara says that the guy doesn't save her because a chassid, because a chassid shot the foolish, pious person, right? 
It doesn't save her because, you know, she's in a bathing suit and it's not Sanua. I can't really look at her, so he lets her drown. Right? So the Gemara calls him a foolish, pious person. Right? Because obviously in that case, right, so you got you gotta save a woman. I don't care if she's dressed or not dressed. You gotta save the woman, right? And you know, why didn't he save the woman? Because he's got that imbalance. He thinks, oh, God doesn't let me look at the woman, but he doesn't have to but he knows that you're supposed to save someone under all conditions. So why is one winning over the other? The answer is that deep down, psychologically, he doesn't have the balance. So that there's a lot of problems with that. You have to like get the balance. So in Judaism, we definitely have that. In different generations, there's an imbalance that needs to be corrected.